Hello and welcome to another episode of the All Angles podcast, where we look to unpack the wonderful world of ESG investing one conversation at a time. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as a solicitation or investment advice from the advisor. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Today, I'm joined by Nicole Zatlin, who's a portfolio manager of our transformative capital strategy, as well as the co-chair of our climate working group. Now, when you're thinking about environmental and social issues, as I'm sure many listeners are, um, there is no shortage of very depressing statistics about either where we are today or the progress that needs to be made in the real economy and in society to get to the future that we all want. So I always enjoy talking to Nicole, who has unbounded enthusiasm for progress and opportunity, as well as a well-formed view of the risks that we all face. In my day-to-day work, whenever I come across an interesting piece of research or my curiosity gets sparked by something and I share it internally, without fail, Nicole will always come back with links to several other pieces and, and much deeper and richer thinking than I have. And it always impresses me that she can maintain a really positive uh, attitude and be really excited about the progress that we're making. I often think that where we are in ESG is really the reunion of the the work of the investment analysis and capital markets with that of the real economy. Um, And I think Nicole perfectly sums up why her perspective is that this is such an interesting field Uh, for us to continue to explore. So Nicole, um, let's begin as we always do. Can you just give us a brief potted history of your journey here? How did you get to be an investor at MFS and one that's focused on the companies that you are and in the climate working group and all of those wonderful things? Super. Thanks so much, Vish. Well, let's see. I grew up in Canada and um, going way back, my house was sort of at the intersection of the most incredible national park, Waskasu National Park, and a polluting pulp mill um, that just reeked um, multiple weeks of the year. So I guess you could say from the like the youngest age, I was just very attuned to strategy and environmental impact. Um, you know, my first job was in government. I was initially really interested in policy and, and policy work and, and how that could be kind of a, a, an avenue. Um, I spent time in Silicon Valley in the late 90s, which really further developed um, my massive appreciation for the power of technology. Um, and then though I joined MFS in 2001, which was the greatest gift, frankly. And it's just been an amazing opportunity to invest as first a specialist and now a generalist. That's incredible. So 20 years at MFS. But before we get into that, I'm, I want to take you back all the way to the to the pulp mill and to the National Forest. You, you said you know, it gave you an appreciation. It must have been incredible to sit, you know, not only within the, the forest and the National Park, you know, considering everything that we're talking about now, um, but also kind of heavy industry. You said, you know, you learned some of those lessons. What are some of those lessons that you kind of reflect on now? Yeah, I think that um, probably the the biggest one, especially with the benefit of hindsight, is that, you know, whether or not we uh, protect what we have, you know, on this earth, or we go ahead and destroy it, completely depends on who is setting strategy. 
And, you know, that was very evident to me as, as a five-year-old kind of in that <laughs> intersection. But certainly now we see it all the time with companies, those that are investing ahead for the climate transition, which we are all a part of, um, and those that are, you know, simply not and continue to do business as usual um, with, you know, massive emissions and, you know, other things we'll get into. So I think that strategy piece is incredibly important. Again, just thinking about your journey from, from there, Silicon Valley you mentioned, and obviously as an investor at MFS and the different roles that you've had at MFS. Um, I'd love to, what is your kind of driving motivation? You know, the interview question of what is your, what is your why? Why do you choose to do this when there's so many other things that you have done and could choose to do? Yeah, well, you know, look, in hindsight there, it wasn't like there was a straight arc from that five-year-old self to, hey, and let's be an investor. There, there were definitely a lot of different paths along the way. I mean, I, um, I, as I said earlier, I initially thought I really wanted to be in policy. So I was really focused on the legal field. I thought I'd go into law. And, you know, I really thought that that was the, the avenue that I would pursue, that we really need to change laws and protections in order to strengthen them, as I said, back to that strategy piece, um, versus weaken them. And so I was very focused there for a very long time, frankly. Um, there was serendipity in my path. I had, um, in undergrad, I had a professor. I was, you know, talking one day about how I was very focused on writing my LSAT and going to law school. And he literally said, you know, I, I think you're making a mistake. I was like, what? No, no one's ever told me that before. I was like, I'm well on this journey. I, I worked in the House of Commons in Canada. I, I really think this is my path. And he was like, I, I hear you. And maybe it is, but I really, really think you should spend some time in finance. And he kind of then took me aside and went through kind of just the the massive mechanism um, of the financial markets to create norms and um, and how that I could possibly be involved and and you know really kind of create impact in that way ultimately and you know I, I ended up in in you know an investment bank in New York City as you know a 21 year old and um, ended up with some incredible mentors for whom I'm incredibly grateful that really did show me that path of of how it was possible to to become involved and um, through the investment process and um, you know. <laughs> And here we are, right? <laughs> Several decades later, and so um, it, it definitely wasn't a clear linear path, but one I'm incredibly grateful for, and that you know really has become, um, yeah, just something I am so passionate about about how we can create change through the financial markets. Yeah, amazing. Well, um, so building on that and thinking about how you've internalized that into your own investment philosophy maybe we sort of start there before we dig into you know esg sort of topics but just maybe for for a couple of minutes describe for us you know your own investment philosophy and how you think about you know building the portfolio that you that you manage sure well in terms of kind of esg philosophy i view it as a non-negotiable and i guess when I say that, it's it's really from a place of first principles. So when we think about what's important to a very good investment, we have to think about what's actually going to matter. And you know, when I think about what matters from a business perspective, for most companies, people are the most important asset. They're certainly the largest asset for most companies. And so 
it just makes a lot of sense to pay attention to the generation engine of the business, that being people. So from an S standpoint, um, it just view it very much as a first principle, pay attention to what matters at the business, people matter to the business. I think from a climate perspective, the E perspective, um, you know, climate is the biggest risk and also this incredible opportunity for all businesses. And it certainly does vary um, sectors and we can get into kind of how the materiality of that, but we are all completely intertwined. So, you know, whether it's a first derivative or a second derivative impact, um, climate really has its tentacles across, across all industries. And so um, I just come back to this can't be separate. This can't be something because it is so front and center for every business out there. So, you know, I have it completely integrated into my philosophy, which also includes finding um, very strong management, finding companies that have very strong moats, which is also companies that have strong control over their balance sheet so that they control their destiny and includes very strong valuation parameters. So those all have to be true um, in order for it to make its way into my strategy. Yeah, no, I love that. And I love the, the idea that you're thinking about, you know, previously you were talking about the economic machine and, you know, your professor sort of saying, well, you know, law might be a terrific path, but actually understand how the economic engine works. And then you translate that to paying attention to what matters, which is the people, climate, the a lot of that, though, is, is, you know, hard to, you know, analyze objectively, right? So maybe a question before we get into materiality is how do you look to build sort of an analytical edge over some of those topics that can be inherently, you know, really intangible or hard to kind of fully quantify? Right. Well, I think that, um, and this is where I think, you know, we talked a little bit earlier, I spent a lot of time um, involved in um, technology, studying technology and, and understanding kind of the drivers of it. I am very data-driven. I really love, you know, that angle of it. So to your point, um, give me numbers. I love them. I love to analyze them. You know, so there's nothing like just getting, you know, a whole column of gross margins over time. I mean, that's fantastic. So, so that's all absolutely important. That said, um, you know, that also doesn't tell us the whole picture and it never has. It, it just often <laughs> feels like it can because it is, it's right there in front of you, right? So 43% is 43%, 83% is 83%. I mean, those are just like, they're great. They're like absolute numbers. It's much harder um, to your point to say, what's the number on culture? What's the number on how a company treats its people? what's the number on toxicity within a culture, right? So I think that um, that's absolutely true that there aren't great hard numbers and we can talk about some of the other things that we can get at, but there aren't great hard numbers on a lot of the people metrics, but that's also what makes them so fascinating and important and so possible for you know a place like MFS where we have analysts across the globe who are talking to companies and competitors every single day that we can get at what is the process within the company and how are people treated within the company and what are those opportunities. So I think that um, 
you're absolutely right. There aren't hard numbers. They're really hard to get at, but that doesn't mean that they aren't important to be working on and thinking about. So they're both true, I guess yeah. is what I would say. Yeah, no, no, no. And, and I think it's in some ways more important or potentially, you know, that you could argue, and I think others have argued that the alpha signal available because it's unstructured data or it's messy data is is there, you know, for the taking for people willing to kind of, you know, apply a qualitative lens. Um, one thing in a related, you know, I've, we've spoken about before, and I've heard you talk about before in the context of moats. So you talked about, you know, in terms of analyzing companies with moats is a sort of sustainability moat. Um, I wondered if you wouldn't mind just unpacking that for for a few seconds in terms of how you think about sustainability as part of the moat, also the sustainability moat concept. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think that um, it is part of the moat and it comes back to this idea that we are long-term investors. So we are looking to make an investment in strategy I manage and compound that over multiple years. And um, so when we're looking and we're thinking about kind of that longer term time horizon, we're not looking for a quick, oh, this is going to be a great quarter. Let's invest and get in and out. And it really doesn't matter what happens to, you know, if we're dumping a bunch of chemicals out the backyard because, oh, we'll be out of stock. Or it doesn't matter that we're, you know, how we're treating our people. When you're going to invest over seven, eight, nine, ten plus years, you're really looking at places where, again, people are, they want to stay, they want to get involved, they want to work really hard and be productive and really contribute to, you know, an outstanding opportunity that they see in front of them. So it really does matter um, how people are treated with, you know, kind of that, you know, the quality and, and the fair pay and, and, you know, these different, these different angles. And likewise, it really does matter what's going to happen in terms of that that big climate risk, which again, we're, we'll, you know, we can talk more about, but you know, that is going to be material over that longer term horizon, as is the climate opportunity, right? So again, some of these things today um, you are very nascent, but when we're looking out now in the next decade, I mean, it's going to be a completely different ballgame. So, um, so when we're thinking about moat, um, those all absolutely come into play because again, you can't just turn around and um, five years from now wake up and say, and look, we're seeing this right now with the, you know, the great resignation that's going on. And um, all of a sudden say, yeah, I know we've had a really crummy culture for the last five years, but today we're gonna have a great one. Right? <laughs> like it just doesn't work that way. So, you know, these things like they kind of build slowly over time and they're very insidious. You don't see them until you do. And, you know, often it's, you know, it's, you, you want to have the, you know, again, we're very focused on downside protection. So it's that, you know, protecting against the risk of not having a great culture um, is, it's you know, something that, again, we're kind of trying to get at, especially because over a long period of time, you probably will see it, even if you don't in the next quarter or two. Nicole, I really want to, I do want to ask you about climate. But before we do, and just again, thinking about your whole kind of process, philosophy, um, are there times where you felt like your approach has really been tested, you know, by the market? And, and what have you maybe learned through some of those pro, those times of test? Absolutely. Um, so first of all, I'd say it gets tested all the time. And I mean, the past you know, year has been a perfect example of that. We've seen many of the very heavy polluting stocks up, you know, 50, 100%, um, you know, straight shots, you know, and 
I don't know any of those. Those are, um, they don't fit the strategy I manage that's looking for environmental solutions. Um, and so, you know, the market in the short term is, is, is very focused often on the short term and, and doesn't pay attention to some of these other things that we talked about. And so um, have been tested many times, will continue to be met, tested many times. I think stepping back a little bit, that's often the greatest opportunity as well, right? So um, over time, the strategy looks to invest over a full market cycle. We're looking out over that seven to 10 year period when the market thinks that we will never again focus on sustainability or we'll never focus again on um, important, uh, you know, the importance of climate change is exactly when we can get great opportunities in stocks. And as we talked about earlier, you know, valuation is a, an important component of the overall strategy. So um, these things all work together, but in the short term, it's absolutely a test. Um, yeah. And on the flip side, I wonder, um, especially given you're looking for those companies that are solving environmental issues and problems, and they can be, I'm sure, you know, fascinating and sort of groundbreaking in many respects and businesses going through transformation. How do you avoid sort of falling in love with that idea? You know, I think everyone's kind of familiar with the idea of a value trap. I wonder if there's a sustainability trap too, where, you know, you can fall, really fall in love with, with an idea. How do you avoid that and avoid sort of getting drawn into these sort of potential areas of noise or frenzy or, or bubbles? Right. I mean, that's all of our work, right? And on the team that we're always talking about, again, coming back to those first principles of what's the moat? What's the value proposition? Is this better than the alternative? Does it offer you know, a, a greater product or service than currently exists and why? And, and those are the types of questions that you know the team we're constantly wrestling with. And um, yeah, that's that's the work that we do at MFS, kind of day in, day out, to really prevent against exactly what you're talking about, kind of the story, <laughs> you know, the the great manager that's super compelling with a cr incredible charisma that you don't really understand. You know, that's the kind of stuff where um, having so many different voices, having such a diverse uh, population, you know, across all the geographies that we really spend a lot of time kind of wrestling with to to get away from the the mania, if you will. Yeah, absolutely, and. Um... Again, lots of just, again, maybe this draws on your experience in Silicon Valley in the technology field. But again, this is now, it feels like a field that's so dynamic, it's changing so fast. And the science is, you know, not fully baked yet, in, in my view. Again, I'd love your thoughts on that. H how do you sort of look to stay not only current, but look ahead and project, you know, are these going to be successful, some of these innovations? How, how do you think about that in something that is moving this quickly? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I guess... One of the things that draws a lot of us to investment ultimately is incredible curiosity, right? So going way back, um, just that pure love of learning is kind of a common trait that that most of us share. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like the greatest part of every single day, just knowing that there are so many things that you don't know at the morning that you're going to just be digging into so that you're getting a better idea on. And this is our work. I mean, this is what we do every single day with every single company, with, with all the different industries. And so there is more that is new. Absolutely. Um, if we talk about climate in particular, I mean, the 
um, IEA, the International Energy Agency, which makes a lot of these forecasts, I think has estimated that like, something like, to your point, 50% um, of the emissions reduction that we're going to need is going to come from uh, technologies and solutions that are today in a prototype state. Right, so like to your point, <laughs> that's a really large number. So there is a lot to learn and they're not all gonna work. And again, I just come back to that's our work. Like it, it's, it's, and this is where it's just, it's day in, day out and, and kind of that, you know, the learning, the talking, the, you know, doing the deep dives, the reading, you know, there are just no shortcuts to this. Um, there never have been and, and there never will be, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and again, it speaks to that kind of wider motivation and the role that the capital market, I think, can play in enabling and facilitating that transition, just how much has yet to be invented and funded and capitalized and moved out. Um, let's stick with climate then. So, Nicole, obviously, you co-chair our climate working group. Um, how do you kind of stay on top of the climate phenomena? What's your thoughts on how that theme is sort of evolving and playing out? Again, it's sort of in much of my eye anyway, going largely sort of mainstream now, it's it's everywhere in daily discourse, as well as our investment conversations, as well as our conversations with our clients. How are you thinking about climate change? And, and maybe tell us some of the work um, that you think the Climate Working Group has been able to do to bring that to MFS. As you say, Vish, it's a massive topic, and it requires the participation of everyone on the team, working collaboratively, and working with a lot of different um, groups globally. So it's 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 not kind of one thing, um, and there's certainly no one size fits all. So it has a there's a lot we could unpack here, and a lot we can get into. I am um, happy with what you said that you think it's now mainstream. Um, I would love that to be true. I think that um, it's been like the most uh, mainstream under the radar thing you know, in the history of the world, right? So we've had the science for decades and decades and um, and we're now starting to talk a lot about this, which is couldn't be, it couldn't be a better thing. Um, you know, I think we've seen a lot of companies go from, uh, yeah, this isn't something we have to worry about to now setting net zero and science-based targets. So effectively aligning their emissions so that you know, by 2050, they will align with the Paris Accord. And again, if we just go back a few years, that number was zero. Zero companies had that kind of alignment to today. It's you know well into the thousands. So, so there is so much that's going on in the space. Um, our MFS, um, Climate Working Group is made up of um, a real cross-section of equity specialists and generalists across the globe, fixed income specialists and generalists. And you know, we are really coming at this, um, our ESG specialists at the firm, our, you know, our stewardship um, leader, and we're really coming at this, trying to look at this from many different angles. Um, and really, again, back to the materiality of climate for our different investments at the firm. So, um, you know, the the uh, just a couple of things to bring up that you know we worked on over the last year. You know, we set out with the um, the MFS um, Climate Manifesto, which really set out who MFS is on climate, and that came out with kind of our three you know big working ideas, which is you know we're really asking all of our companies to disclose 
plan and act, right? So disclose their emissions. We need that disclosure. So back to your point on data earlier, which is so important. So we're all on the same page. We want to see all companies have their scope one, two, and three emissions disclosed. Um, we're looking for that plan that does align with the Paris Accord. So we get to the net zero by 2050 and ideally earlier. Um, and then really importantly, we want to see the action. Um, and this is where, you know, again, there's just so much work to be done um, with the action so that we actually hit these targets that are now being set. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the Disclosed Plan Act framework has been really, really helpful. I wonder if, just to take that maybe a layer deeper, like in some of your own experiences, either with companies or through the work of that team, maybe could you just talk about like how that's helped frame up some of these dialogues with the companies that we own at MFS um, to talk about that disclosed plan act framework sort of in action, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I think we're all on a journey, right? So companies are on a journey and there are some companies that are, you know, they're really far along their journey. So, so they've gone through all these and they're really in the, the act phase. And then it's really helpful that we get in that together and, and truly understand those different targets. But if we just step back, there are companies that are material emitters today and you know, today they don't have their scope one, two, three um, emissions disclosed. And, you know, so it's just really helpful to say, you know, we are a major investor in your company. This is something that we see as material. It's something we see as important. Um, and to have that discussion, where are you on that journey to disclose your emissions? And, you know, in many cases, it's been really helpful. The company will often come back and say, look, this was really helpful. We brought it to our board. It's really good to hear the voice of you know, our major investors that this is, you know, we, we've had it on the agenda. It was further further down, but something we're bringing up. Um, you know, we saw through the proxy season last year, we just saw it again recently, um, you know, a company we were invested in, um, you know, asked, there was, you know, a proxy vote on, you know, scope three emissions disclosure. And, you know, it, these are now passing a few years ago. Again, they were getting kind of much smaller participation, but this is a very broad issue now. And so, again, we just saw very recently another scope three emissions disclosure proxy vote pass. Um, and so this is kind of one of those big issues. It does have, um, you know, we are very focused on it as are other uh, participants in the marketplace. And, you know, companies, I think, again, they are responding and it's really helpful to have, you know, to lay out our framework so that they also, you can understand, okay, where does this sit in terms of priorities for, you know, our, our various shareholders? Mm. And and the talk a little bit more, if you don't mind, about the high quality plan sort of component part of it. How, how do you, what's a, what does a high quality plan entail for you? What, what are the kinds of things that you and the MFS investors like to see from the companies? Right. One of the things we really like to see at MFS are plans that align with the Paris Accord. So, so the, you know, kind of the best in class that we see today, which isn't to say there won't be others. Um, we really love, you know, the science-based targets. Um, so again, this is a very robust framework and um, it does align with the Paris Accord. And we also very much appreciate the net zero target setting, which again, also gets us to that 2050. One of the big difference between you know, a science-based target and a net zero approach are the use of carbon offsets. And um, 
with the, the science-based target approach, you know, there, there isn't a use of, of carbon offsets, and we could have a whole separate conversation on those. But um, you know, I, I think one of the big issues that is very much a struggle today, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with you know the number of technologies and, and solutions that have are still nascent, that in some cases some of the pathways, especially for some of the heavy polluting industries, there isn't um, there isn't a simple solution today. It's not like um, if they just wanted to, they could become this carbon-free business um, just by turning a switch. It's not, it didn't work like that. It's not going to work like that. And so there is still, um, a, there are still are many unknowns. So some of the companies that we speak to, they talk about this struggle that they can get 75% of the way there with existing technologies today using, you know, renewables, using battery storage, changing processes internally, but they can't get the last five, 10, 20% of the way there with, with existing technologies. And this is where um, this, you know, the struggle is real. And this is where these different philosophies, I think in terms of science-based targets and, and net zero, where there is still um, a, you know, a lot of work to be done, frankly, in terms of, you know, back to that, you know, what we still need to see happen. So for the whole planet, we can get to, you know, a, a much different place with our emissions. So Nicole, I love that framing of sort of, climate change and you know disclosed plan act and where we are and you know again it's helpful that we've got some of these frameworks for climate change i wonder you know just coming back to your earlier comment about the importance of people in in the role that they play in many of these businesses them being economic drivers of value and paying attention to what matters what's your view of kind of where we are on the social side of things um and the s in in esg yeah i love that question um yeah i think they're they're kind of two big areas that we think about here when we're analyzing the company. So there's one that we've spoke about a little bit more, which is in terms of really paying attention to the composition of the workforce and the investment in the workforce and the opportunities for growth and development you know, within the company itself, right? And and here, you know, you know, one of the things at MFS, we ask our companies to disclose around some of the um, some of the metrics we can get, such as turnover, such as um, you know, gender identification. Um, you know, we really ask companies to um, to really you know, less, uh, so we can better understand kind of the percentage of um, full-time workforce, part-time workforce, contractors, and then we can see some data around you know, accident rates, fatalities. So, so there there is some good data. There could certainly be a lot more of it. We really, we do ask our companies to disclose where it makes sense because it is so helpful to try and understand that picture from the, the company. Um, and it is only one, one part of that view. The other side of that is um, also on the supply chain. So again, the, the indirect S to companies, but that is so, again, so meaningful to their actual delivery of their product and service. So here, um, in terms of supply chains, it's really trying to understand, you know, how the companies are approaching their supply chains. How does that partnership work? And, you know, is there um, fair and equal treatment? Is there here? Are there living wages within the supply chain? And so these are, t these are topics that are, um, you know, again, to your point, the data is even less good. Um, and so these are tend to be uh, more around conversations um, and trying to understand the company's, you know, perspective on, on how they work with their supply chain. But these are absolutely um, topics of conversation and come back to this again, 
when we're trying to look at, you know, whether or not we're going to have a sustainable business over, you know, that long run. Again, in the short run, some of this stuff may or may not matter, but in the long run, it absolutely does matter. And so, so these are the conversations we have around these issues. I guess just one other thing, because um, we've talked a lot about data and again, there are some numbers we can get, right? But there is a lot of unstructured data that's coming into the market also that can tell us something around some of these topics as well. So, you know, in different parts of the world, there are some, um, again, publicly available, this isn't, you know, secretive stuff that where we can capture snapshots in time of, you know, employees. So in the US, there's Glassdoor, in other parts of the world, there are other equivalents. And some of that unstructured data, again, it's never going to tell us an answer, but it certainly can be um, an interesting starting point to understand where are some of the pain points within companies. And, and really importantly, how is management viewing that, thinking about that? Um, and, and what are they doing around, you know, kind of some of the issues that do arise? So again, um, these are just some of the ways that the, the last piece on the supply chain with some of that unstructured data what we don't want to see is, you know, um, through some of these organizations, the, the big story in the newspaper. I mean, at that point, it's too late, like, right? So you kind of want to get there much earlier before they have, you know, the crisis situation. Um, so, you know, again, it's it's trying to put together some of these these topics and see where it sits within the importance on the management team and where it sits within you know, the board as well. Mm. And so thinking about that management sort of, proactivity or that mindset if you like in terms of think, thinking about those risks one thing I was really wanted to ask um it comes maybe to your short term long term to my eye and ear you know consumers are now paying more attention to some of these supply chain risk issues right or at least they are in theory and there's some good news flow around it has that kind of found its way to the corporate boardroom in your so you know back to you know the economic modes and sustainability like are people seeing viewing this as a potential threat if they don't you know clean up their act quote unquote or or actually an opportunity to differentiate versus competitors and peers has that has that happened yet in a, in a meaningful way to your mind or, or are we not quite there yet i think we're absolutely seeing it and it comes back to this point on on value proposition right so you know, we do have so much more technology and and it's ubiquitous globally and so you once you've seen the picture of all of the plastic you know on the shore of your favorite beach anywhere in the world now, right? I mean, this is, again, this is a global issue. You can't unsee it. And so um, consumers are a huge part in this. And we've seen with the consumer products companies, for example, um, we've seen some major um, announcements and target setting around their plastics, plastics use and, and the changes to the, you know, the actual product packaging. And I think that this is very much back to a first principle issue of, of the value proposition and, and what the consumers are demanding. We're starting to see it in some areas of the apparel market in terms of the material, um, you know, the material production and, and actual like what the materials are for different um, products, the recyclability. And again, you know, so these are all discussions that are so much more front and center right at the product level that again, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, were just, you know, they were such a small, you know, one-off. And today it's just very much, you know, you, very much in the, in the flow of the discussion. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I remember reading somewhere, it was in a mainstream newspaper that I think it's the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, you know, one in 40 pieces of plastic bottles belong to one specific 
very large beverage company. Um, and it kind of does actually change your mindset, actually, as a consumer of that, you know, do I really want to contribute to that? Like you said, you kind of make that link immediately. And, and now with social media and the, the rapidity of the of the news flow, it's kind of it gets around extremely fast. And, I, I, you know, it's good to know that companies are alive to some of those risks and issues. But like you said, they can manifest extremely quickly. Um so just, I, Nicole, if it's okay with you, I'd love to just kind of dive down a layer deeper. So we've talked about some of the kind of big picture and, and some of the thematic issues in environmental and social space. Um, are there any kind of company level examples or specific ideas that you think about that sort of help to kind of flesh out the process, the thesis and how that sort of shifts and the dynamism that we've talked about through time? Sure. Um, maybe just thinking about one with... Um... On, on the uh, a, a company that you know, we've owned at MFS, working really closely with our analysts. Um, and again, I think one of the things that's so great about MFS, wherever the stock is domiciled, it's not usually where they have all of their business. So, you know, we are, this is, you know, we're a global investment manager. And so, um, you know, the company I'm thinking about here, the analysts p- pitched the stock, um, which competes in many parts of the world. And then, you know, in the discussion, we have input from the analysts, you know, the, the, you know, the specialists in other parts of the world who are weighing in on, you know, that direct competition. And yeah, what is it that they're doing differently that, that does make them the, the better company in the space? And then we have, of course, the, the generalists who are, are looking at, you know, I've, I've seen companies like this before. And, and um, so these, these dialogues are really robust and, so the one company I'm thinking about here is um, you know, a global um, leader in the area of electrification and um, you know, really focused on energy efficiency and, and um, automation. And you know, they provide a lot of the hardware and software solutions um, for, you know, for um, you know, a lot of the sectors within the spaces. And so you know, this is a company that, again, just coming back to the first principles, has a really really nice moat, um, you know, has a really strong distribution um, and has invested a lot. So has paid a lot of attention to their innovation engine. So it isn't, again, something like we were talking about, they didn't just wake up yesterday and saw that, hey, the world needs more electrification over the next decade. They've been hard at work at this for many, many decades. Um, and so, you know, it's, um, I think it's the type of example where it fits kind of on the, um, you know, the strong moat, the strong focus on um, their people, a strong focus on their innovation, um, a really great balance sheet, as well as a really nice valuation. So that it's the kind of stock where, um, you know, it fits very well into the strategy I manage. It fits well into other strategies across the firm, because again, this is just a a really great stock that also is going to benefit from a lot of these tailwinds in electrification over the next um, many years. I love that. And uh, it's such a clear example of, of, again, like you said, a company that's been committed and and doing that and now reaping the reward of maintaining an edge um, over an extended period of time. Um, Nicole, before I ask you some sort of more kind of questions a little bit more about you, like, are there other themes in this whole space that you're watching very intently that you are looking to kind of play out or, or, you know, excited to see how they, they, they may play out over time? If I could take that in two parts. One, I think one of the things that we haven't talked about maybe quite as much is the G, so the governance, which um, you know I think we've talked about in terms of strong management. We talked a little bit about board, but incredibly important. Coming back to where we started at the beginning about the decision makers at companies and who's saying strategy. 
I mean, this is just, these are just such important topics that, you know, we, so we meet with board members, um, you know, it's, it's, we vote our proxy actively and this is really, um, I think we're going to see a lot of really interesting changes in this space over the next several years where, you know, it's not enough for board members um, anymore to say, you know, yeah, we, we, we don't talk about climate in the boardroom. I mean, we can see through various disclosures, you know, the carbon disclosure project, you know, it's all online, free and open to everyone, right? In terms of how often is this being t discussed at the board, for example, is one of the questions. So I think that there is um, a lot of change to come in governance and I think incentives are super important. So so just, you know, kind of a whole area that we, we didn't touch quite as much on in this discussion, but is incredibly important and something that we do a lot of kind of deep diving into because of its importance. Um, and so, so that's um, just on that. On the excitement side, um, you know, I think there are so many changes that we're going to see in, in all these different areas that we've talked about. But the one that I just I think cannot be understated is on the climate side. Um, so we have this true risk, and we're going to see nonlinear impacts, and and you know, there there's a lot on the risk side, and at the same time, there are incredible opportunities ahead of us. Um, we just think about, you know, I think in 2021, we've seen some of the numbers now, um, globally, there was approximately $900 um, billion spent on clean energy. And many of uh, the economists, um, you know, have said that we need to spend something like $4 trillion per year. Uh, McKinsey came out this week and I think said six trillion. So we have tremendous spend that we need um, ahead of us. And that kind of spend creates tremendous opportunities. And, and that's both in these nascent technologies that we talked about earlier, but also in many of the areas that are right in front of us today. So um, and, and again, these all everything's interrelated too. So there's the first order effects, and then there's the second, third order effects of, of that kind of spend. So, um, you know, I am very excited about these changes and and the opportunities that many of the companies um, will have in front of them to to be major players um, in in the area in in the climate space. Um, thank you, Nicole. I mean, the, the, to your first point on governance, maybe it would be fascinating to have you back after proxy season to see what um, changes have resulted. You know, last year was such a interesting and in, in many ways sort of groundbreaking kind of proxy season. It looks like this year is shaping up to be kind of on a similar trajectory. Maybe we'll have you back on in sort of eight months time to kind of reflect on how governance has shifted through time. You're right, we haven't spent much time on it today. Um, and I'm glad for your optimism on climate change because there's no end of depressing stories about, you know, how how far the, the climate trajectory has already gone. And, and essentially, you know, if we stopped emitting carbon, we'd still be on a, you know, somewhere between a one and a half and two degree trajectory as of today for the next hundred years. So, you know, we we need the technology to essentially siphon the carbon out of the atmosphere um, as fast as as possible. Um Nicole, I, I want to be extremely grateful for your time. So I'm going to ask you just a few kind of quick fire questions to end, um, if that's okay. So um, outside of MFS, when you're not thinking about your portfolio and the climate working group and all the phenomenal investments and the ideas that you're thinking about, what do you devote your time to? Sure. Um, well, I am passionate about the world of ideas. So you'll find me reading 
reading, reading, um, my first uh, love and, and what I spend a lot of time doing. Um, and then I love hiking. So that thinking after, yeah, after the reading, yeah, I have good thinking. Um, I love trying to understand art and artists and ideas from all different uh, spheres. And I guess the other piece would just be the trying to adjust parts of unequal systems with my time, energy and resources. I love that. I've, I've got to admit to everyone, when you came back from Alaska and you had done some wild hiking, I was extremely jealous in the in the in the late summer last year of some of your pictures. Um, so speaking of reading, um, what would be the book or article or piece of literature that you've shared with your loved ones or recommended the most? I am a huge fan of the work of the Santa Fe Institute. They do a lot of work on complex systems and it covers many different disciplines and I am constantly pointing people to um, and to the articles to the research that is coming out of the Santa Fe Institute so that would be probably what gets sent from me the very most. I love that. I've one of actually when I very early in my career I was pointed to Michael Mabusin's um, book uh, or at least chapter on why zebras don't get ulcers which actually came from the Santa Fe uh, Institute. He's a terrific author and thinker and I think has borrowed a lot from from that systems thinking um super interesting their their work and the, and the way that they think about it and what we can learn actually from adjacent disciplines and, and apply it that makes a lot of sense to me um Nicole earlier you talked about you know some of the you know serendipity in your life in terms of that you know uh, the professor and some of your mentors in New York uh, I'm curious what is in your mind what is the kindest thing that anyone has done for you? Maybe not the absolute kindest, but a kind thing that someone has done for you? Um, the, as you say, there have been many, um, so it, it's impossible to pick the, but I will say my first grade teacher, you know, I was in this uh, pretty remote part of the world and um, she was just unbelievable. And she dragged into our small classroom, this old, Victorian bathtub, which she painted bright red. And when you were done your work, you could sit in this bright red, incredible in my mind bathtub and read. And um, I spent my entire first grade year reading books in that bathtub, which has created this lifelong passion for reading. So I could not be more grateful to her and, and the journey she put me on. That's incredible. I hope my daughters don't hear that because they'll paint my bathtub red and start reading their books and building forts in there. Uh, and that's very much grateful for that. Chris. Yeah, yeah, maybe but that's my sanctuary. Um, what, um, just to finish, Nicole, thank you so much. What one message do you think is really important to give to our clients from the back of our conversation today? If we had to sum it up in, in kind of one sentence, um, climate is the biggest risk for many of our investments. It's to your point earlier, Vish, it is, mainstream but that doesn't equate action and so there are tremendous risks sitting right in front of us um, and unbelievable opportunities great nicole thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and ideas again if you uh, have us we'd, we'd love to have you back maybe after the proxy season is closed and we can dig into to governance and and some of the other issues that are front of mind for you but thank you so so much for all your time and thoughts Thank you so much. It's great.